Top 2 Poker Podcast. Count it down, Creepy Cyborg. 3, 2, 1, 0. You, like, flopped a royal and got two people shoving <laughs> into you, right? Support your beard grooming products. Top 2 Poker Minds. Oh my gosh. And <laughs> that's all we have. Do 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 top two podcast poker cast with Drew Chase Chase and Drew yeah coming to you from the west and the east coast start probably by introducing myself I'm a 32 year old current floor man at Commerce so I'm able to watch a lot of the big action that comes through California uh, start to pick up again especially after the series has ended I've been playing poker for probably from the years of 18 till now, so probably about 14, 15 years. Faded in from semi-casual to tried to go professional a couple times with different levels of success. Black Friday kind of did me in, and then, uh, but I've had the pleasure of knowing Chase for most of my adult life. Um, Chase, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, Black Friday did us all in. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm Chase Bianchi. I currently play poker for a living. I've been playing poker for probably about eight years, off and on professionally. Got my start in, uh, moved to Seattle area and played at some local card rooms, started working at some local card rooms and started making more money playing than working and uh, slowly transitioned over to playing full time. Uh, I was in Seattle that I met Andrew. We were roommates and Anyway, went off and on, playing full-time, going broke, doing the typical, like, young, trying to make it in the poker world thing, and uh, spat me out on the other side, and here I am uh, a couple years later, settled down a little bit, now I'm married, so I got some more responsibilities. Well, and you've, and, and you're growing a beard, I mean, that's another responsibility yes. as well, so you got a oh, pet beard got attached to your face. Um, yeah, you got to support your beard grooming products. Of course. Um, what we're going to be going through today is we're actually going to be going through a little bit more in depth. We know we've touched on it. our history together, both as friends. And I don't think we really understood what we were watching when, you know, we started playing poker more and more seriously. And I've worked in poker rooms ever since I've known Chase. And oh he, man, we had no idea what we were doing back then. <laughs> no idea what we were doing or witnessing because that was when like, I mean, internet speeds were just starting to catch up. And online poker, I remember <laughs> trying to play online poker essentially with what nowadays would be considered dial-up. So I think we're oh, going to yeah. be today touching on our history together and how that coincides with what's going on or what went on with the history of poker for the last five to ten years and a lot of the changes there. A little bit later we'll be talking about um, and speculating, poker term, about what's going on currently in poker. Chase just got back from the World Series as that kind of comes to a close. And nowadays, in this current climate, what I see from commerce, what it takes to be a winning cash game, an MTT, live or online player. And then we'll be going through a hand review a little bit later towards the end of uh, be our last segment and then kind of teasing what we'll be going through on the next podcast for you guys. Yeah, buddy. So, so it's kind of exciting. <laughs> it's been a long ride, huh? Yeah, it, it has been. And let's talk about um, 
most recently what's been going on with you? Something pretty exciting happened in your life besides the beard. I know it, dude. Um, it's like the kind of stuff we dreamed about, right? Yeah. Like I, I always th- dreamed I would win a bracelet. And like I kind of had realistic expectations that a lot of good players go a lifetime without winning a bracelet. And holy crap, it actually happened. Yeah, so for those of you that don't know, I know we're probably going to get a lot of our followers from um, maybe your Twitch stream and, and, you know, people that follow you know that you won a bracelet this summer on a No Limit event. But for our our viewers that don't know, tell us a little bit about that experience. It was event number 17, is that correct? Yep, event 17, $1,000 buy-in, No Limit Hold'em. Got, I think, 2,200 and some players. Yeah. $2 million prize pool. It was... It was wild, man. Just one of the typical big field, huge prize pool attorneys. And what did you what did you feel about the structure? I know you're not a stranger at all to playing these like one K, fifteen hundreds. I know you've you've played probably what at this point? I mean, if you're gonna guess ten, fifteen of them in the last like three to five years. Oh gosh, in the last like six years I've probably played uh thirty of them or something of the like one K and fifteen hundreds. Quite a lot. I think the structure's good. They they've gone over the years and started to give you more starting chips. So you actually get a decent amount of play at the beginning of these tournaments now. Whereas in previous years, it was kind of, you know, you either run it up or run it down in the first couple levels. But anymore, you get a pretty reasonable starting stack and an hour level. So you get some time, but you still have to run super good, obviously. And let's talk about, I mean, so have you changed your strategy in the starting rounds of, of larger um, live MTTs because when you and I were living together probably about five, six years ago, I remember just always asking you how you're doing and for updates when we'd either play together or you were traveling and I was still working in Seattle at, at the card rooms. And a lot of times you didn't have a problem building up a, a really large stack early and then taking some of these a little bit higher variance lines that you'd be getting in like <laughs> exotic four and five bets and, uh, <laughs> You know, not always, and sometimes, I mean, they were good, and sometimes you would uh, blow off your stack, but um, has anything really changed with your approach? I mean, especially with winning this MTUT, like, I haven't watched you play live for quite a while, except for I got to see you the final table this time. Yeah, I, I, I'm much more of a proponent of playing in position in the first couple levels, and, like, it's okay to just call some bets and see some flops in position, especially against weak players. If you have a tough lineup, it's going to be lineup dependent. Because if you have a tough lineup, you should probably just play tight before there's annies. Because there's really just not much reason to get involved pre-ante. So it's going to depend a little bit on the structure when the annies kick in and what your table's letting you get away with. I don't know if there's like a hard and fast rule. A lot of people have a lot of different ways to play early level tournaments. I will say that some of the pros give up so much equity by not showing up in the first couple levels. They'll show up like three, four hours late, or, you know, whenever they can late register it. And, man, all these bad players, all the guys that are just there to, like, blow off a 1,000 and give away their starting stack, they're already busted. You know, so I really think that you got to be a, be there for, like, hand number one and try to get that early value because you that's the advantage, too, of taking flops in position you're going to just flop like top two against a guy that can't fold top pair and just get double stack. And it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely agree. I mean, I, I mean, I have not 
entered nearly as many MTTs um, and live tournaments as you, but even the ones that I've played and my experience of, of running them in Seattle and just in the industry, you always notice in the first couple of rounds that those people that like use a larger chip stack when you're starting 30, 40, 50 big blinds or even more like even above 100 big blinds to use that to their disadvantage by seeing way too many flops, limping too much, raising too much. And before you know it, they cripple themselves. And a lot of these people get frustrated and they just give up and they're just like punting their stack off, you know, the first couple hours. And it's a great spot. I think like where you don't have to risk your equity where a guy that's got 20% of your stack is just like jamming against your big blind. You wake up with uh, a reasonable holding and you can just pick them off and chip up real early in a lot of these tournaments, I think. Yeah, uh, especially with all these, like, new deep stack variants where they give you far too many starting chips. You know, you lose half your stack, and you look down, and you think, man, I don't have any chips, but you still have, like, 70 big blinds. And you see people so often just get in, like, 70 big blinds with, like, ace-jack because they feel like they're short-stacked, even though they're not. Yeah, that's very true. Well, with with your bracelet, what do you think, um, it was... I think it was, was it three or four days in total for you? Uh, it was a long three days. Oh, okay. Uh, what what day was the hardest, or what did you have to overcome? Were there some certain spots? I know uh, I started railing it a lot on the, the third day when I was driving 110, 120 miles an hour to <laughs> Prius out from California to Vegas to, to try to watch the final table. But uh, what was what was probably the most difficult part of that for you? Day two was pretty rough. Really, like... Most of the tournament was a bit of a roller coaster. Um, I held it together pretty good, like emotionally, mentally. But I remember pretty early on day two, got in a big flip early. I believe I had ace king against pocket tens. And it was for like 110k flip when the blinds were 8 and 1600. So it was a pretty large flip. Uh, almost, what is that, like 70, 80 big blinds. So I got in that flip and lost it, and I was down to, like, two big blinds and ended up, no, I was actually down to, like, yeah, like two or three big blinds and got dealt kings in the big blind and, like, tripled up and then got kings, like, an orbit later and doubled up again. So that was, like, probably the most stressful part of the tournament and kind of a chip in chair moment where... You're in the big blind with like two big blinds and you get pocket kings. <laughs> it's just kind of a dream. I mean, from a mathematical standpoint, that's pretty incredible. If you think of even at that stage in the tournament, from a chip, just from a purely uh, a ratio, if you look at the amount of chips you have in play versus the amount of chips you ended up with, which is all of them, yeah. obviously. You yeah, I mean, first. I was down to down to five thousand chips, I think, and the blinds were eight and sixteen. And ran that up to 11 million. I mean, when you think about it, it's just, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it just goes to show you that, uh, especially in good structure tournaments, which the 1K doesn't have the best structure, obviously, but it's it's reasonable, you know, for the field yeah, size. Yeah, any WSOP event with an hour-long levels is good structure. Um, you know, you just really can't get too discouraged. And you see a lot of players, I think, get very, very discouraged and essentially just give up. You know, and they don't, uh, you know, they get down under 10 big blinds, under 15 big blinds. I think that's the difference between um, the mature players that really take it serious is I've seen some really good players. And you've told me uh, with some of the top pros that you've played with, 
even when they're under 20 big blinds, they really try to preserve their equity and they just don't give up. Oh, yeah. I played with Fedor Holtz in the 6 Max 1500 event. And he took a couple beats and, you know, lost a couple of medium-sized pots. And pretty soon he was in like a 10 to 20 big blind stack. And the guy was just battling. Like, he was doing some kind of unconventional stuff, like flatting raises from 15 big blind stack in position and, like, playing flops, turns, and rivers on, like, a 10 big blind stack, you know? And it was pretty interesting. The guy was just, like, finding unconventional ways. And he was picking up bots, you know? And a pickup there is like half of his stack almost. So he he was I was very impressed. I was you know I need to look at considering doing more like flatting on a fifteen big blind stack and how that maybe like impacts our ranges because I it's he was doing stuff that I was just like you're in like the no flatting zone when you have fifteen big blinds like what are you doing there Fedor but the guy's a killer so makes me think that he's on to something. Yeah, and into that particular case, I know we've discussed it before. I mean, some of the better players, their equity um, to remain in a tournament and remain alive, if they can get a couple doubles up, double ups, just because of exponential value plus antes. I mean, if you add the antes in with exponential value, you know, they can become dangerous again as soon as they get a double up or two and pick up some antes. So definitely something to think about. But um, let's let's move forward a little bit and kind of talk about how we know each other. So <laughs> kind of yeah. an interesting story. I uh I ended up meeting you probably when I was like, you must have been barely 21, 22, and I was a couple years older than you. So I was like... 20, in Pendleton? Yeah, in 24 in Pendleton, Oregon, which is not one of those names you hear pop up on the poker map very much. They had a... Uh, yeah, dude, this, I used to go to Pendleton because it was 18 and up, and I wasn't 21 yet when I first started going there. So I might have been like 20 at the time. I don't remember. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely a while ago when in our younger days by far, but... Um, I met you and we talked about buying action and uh, uh, and I think we played together a little bit and just kind of had a friendly conversation and then it ended up I at the time was a poker manager or poker floor in Seattle and we bumped into each other again because I think you were just running around in Seattle playing. Uh, actually, yeah. That part. Uh, I don't know where we ran into each other again. Probably playing or maybe I came in for a job because I was going back and forth between. I don't know if I was playing full time when I ran into you down there. I don't remember, but I was back and bouncing back and forth between playing and working full time. Yeah, and it, it's so crazy to juxtapose that um, to where I saw you begin and and where I was at. Um, we were both playing a decent amount of limit back then, which was kind of in the Seattle area. Um, there was a lot of good limit, and Snoqualmie wasn't built yet, which is a big Indian Casino, which had brought in a lot of like no limit or well up in Seattle with spread limit um, based on the the laws and regulations. But there wasn't a lot of no limit at that time in the Seattle areas, much more uh, of like a limit area. And we were both, I think, cut our teeth on a lot of like live limit cash. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was like the low stakes, mid stakes grind out there was if you want to play live poker, you're probably going to be playing a limit game. But there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of decent players and bracelet winners that have come from the Seattle area, like Rep Porter, who just recently got his third bracelet and went deep in the 50K mm -hmm. Players Championship. Uh, Tommy Hang, who plays some of the biggest games at Commerce. Um, even like John Juwanda, who's a little bit of an older name. Um, and uh, there's just a lot of guys that have come from the Seattle area who I think have a, a really good poker background because 
you know, yeah, it, it's an underestimated poker market. I I took for granted when I was living there how good poker actually really was in Seattle area. It's kind of dropped off since, but we we had it pretty good back there in the glory days. And I remember that you started to transition into online way way before myself or any of our other roommates uh, started playing online. Do you remember what what really got you started and what happened there? Because I know you've had um, some uh, some success online as well. Yeah, yeah, a little bit more about my early story, my early entry into poker. It was partially I was playing with like high school buddies, but also I got into online poker pretty early. And I I remember I gave my dad 50 bucks and I said, "Dad, let me use your credit card." And <laughs> put like 50 <laughs> bucks online, ran it up to 7,000 and then went broke, you know. Oh, wow, I didn't so, know that story. Yeah, it was when I was really young too, so you know, like seven grand when you're 18, it's like a, it's a lot of cheeseburgers. Uh-huh. Yeah, for real. It's like a new car, you know? Yeah. So I had an early start online and I really enjoyed the format. I enjoy being able to play a lot of games. So I was all about it. I was doing probably about half online, half live when I was playing in Seattle area. And I, I was one of those stereotypes that I was kind of from the rounders generation um, where I'd started playing like, at 17 and 18 in our like in one of my high school buddies basements and we would all drink Mountain Dew until we we're all hyped up and play for change jars and it was highly competitive mainly because you know a bunch of us young guys have a bunch of pride it wasn't about the 20 cents or two dollar pots we would lose but no one wanted to be the first person going broke in those games and you know and then at 18 I actually owned a business at 17 that burned down a fire and I was kind of like lost and adrift didn't go to didn't want to go to college right away. I started working in casinos at 18. Um, I remember sitting there uh, dealing blackjack and going, man, that poker stuff looks like more fun. And I was always uh, would play after work and I was the bad player. I remember like, it's funny from where I am now to, I remember I used to be the person people would want to table change into my table all the time with myself and some of the other dealers that would get off work in the blackjack section. But it's cool because I, I was able to see you throughout the years become a more accomplished online player. And, you know, one of the things that I've seen you do that I don't see many people doing um, is the study part of your game. I think that came into play. Um, and I know we'll touch on that a little bit more later. But that component of your game has always been present. Yeah, I hit I hit those online like card runners when card runners and deuces cracked were really going strong. And had a lot of original content, not just the filler crap that they have now that everyone already knows. But when those guys were coming out with original stuff and, like, some of the high-stakes players, like CTS, was putting, like, some of his three-best strategy stuff out there, I was, like, literally, I remember falling asleep at my computer watching Card Runners videos and waking up after, like, you know, the middle of the night and being like, oh, oh, gosh, what am I doing? And crawling into bed. Because I was just so immersed in poker. I could not get enough of it. I watched so many videos. I like read all the books I could find. I played until I went, you know, I fell asleep in my chair. I was just, I was sucked into it. Yeah. I, and that was a great resource back then. Like, a lot of people didn't take advantage of it, but it was huge. Yeah, I, I remember those times when I would ask you what you're doing. And, and uh, I remember myself at the time, I was playing... Um, 816 with a half kill and towards the end of that of us living together living around each other I was playing a lot of 2040 limit um 
you know, as struggling through, I mean, the two plus two forums were alive and active, and I know you were you were present on there, uh, or you had a presence on there, and you were using that as a study tool. But I kind of am the recipe of like what not to do, what not to be as a player, because I remember a lot of a lot of it for me um, was, you know, twenty forty a rack of chips is five hundred. So I remember you win a couple of racks, you win a thousand. Even in a good game or in a bad game, you quit. You know, I would go out drinking, go play pool, go do things with my buddies. Whereas I remember for you, like you would literally play until you fell asleep. Like you said, you would like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, shoot, if I'm up two racks on game, I'm like, man, this must be a good game. I better keep playing. Yeah. And I think that was just your mentality, which, you know, the one thing that um, looking back, I, I appreciate, which is why, like, as crazy as it sounds, like I even told you when you told me how you were doing in the uh, in event number 17, which you eventually got the bracelet out of. I said, I'm going to drive in. And I'm going to watch you ship a bracelet because you have been preparing yourself for that moment for quite some time. And I rushed in there because I felt, you know, it'd be an honor as your friend and one of your best friends that's known you for a while to be able to watch that moment and be there for that moment because it's really in all aspects of your game. I mean, you've, you know, uh, and you currently actively play some limit hold'em, uh, no limit hold'em. I mean, you're a very well-rounded player. Um, you haven't quite yet gone to mixed games as much, and you no, I've been on the PLO grind lately, and you haven't been not spent. Some- I need to uh, mixed game has like been on the back burner of my study time, but I really just haven't committed to it yet. Well, and, and you haven't played as much Chinese poker with me as, as, as I really have been. <laughs> you have lost my Chinese accent. I know. I, 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 I don't know if what's been going on there, but uh, I need to get you back on the app. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I really felt as though, you know, as many as much as anyone on the final table, you had deserved it, as weird a way as it is to put it, just because you had been studying and spending so much time. And... You know, I think that segues really nicely into the second topic we're going to talk about tonight, not just our history and your most recent bracelet, but just what poker is today and some of the themes and some of the attributes of what I think is a winning player and an enduring player. I mean, granted, a lot of my experience is is off the felt running and managing a card room. But then again, I've watched card rooms, you know, break millionaires people have lost millions and I've known about and I've done the the data behind it. I mean, it worked at the win um, and highlight Baccarat and I've seen a lot of different gamblers heard a lot of weird theories about how dealers make you lose and all, everything in between. Oh yeah. Um, you know, but I've been able to see like players long-term that are winners year after year. And then some of the players who are very talented and who don't make it for one reason or another, I don't know if you remember, I don't want to use his name, but there was a guy I introduced you to you from Oregon that was friends with my friend Adam Gosvener, and he had some success online, MTTs, but he was always so volatile, um, mm, Yeah, and he met up with you in Vegas in some of your earlier World Series trips, and he was one of the guys that, you know, if he would win 10, 20,000... And I think he was getting staked a lot towards the end of his career because he just couldn't manage his money. And I think that's one thing at the peak of poker to date, which we saw after Chris Moneymaker and after, you know, Internet gaming became something that was a huge, huge thing until Black Friday. And there's so much money and it was 
took a lower caliber of player is a lot of these poker players didn't manage the money correctly. You know, that's obvious now, um, but I was certainly victim of that. I spent money in like bar tabs and taking time off and all sorts of things where, you know, people like yourself, you invested that in experiences. And I think one of the other traits that you have that's really good is you balance well between running into the biggest games sometimes or in a card room or into a higher game and taking some shots with, I think you learned a little later after going broke a couple times, bankroll management. Yeah, dude. I remember the one thing that, one of the few things that you've told me that has stuck with me. No, I'm just kidding. You've told me a lot of things that have stuck with me. But one of the things in terms of bankroll management is that there is a high cost of going broke. Keeping yourself in action makes you money. Playing aside, if you don't have money to play, you you know you can be the best player in the world. If you don't have a dollar to play with, you you're not making any money. So uh, yeah, as as much responsibility and stuff as I have, and taking care of my family now, going broke is not an option. So I would go and get a nine to five job long before I went broke anymore. Well, and I, I think that um, you know, I mean, when we talk about no limit and, and you and I talk strategy. One of the things we look for is we oftentimes in time by hand, try to find places to balance our range. And you know, that concept is, is really important in no limit because if we're running an unbalanced range, we're pretty exploitable. Like if, if all of our raises always mean, you know, that it's for value preflop, it's always like a premium hand, then we're very exploitable. If people are like thinking through how to, adjust, which a lot of times would be like folding king queen, you know, but I think also as a poker player, you found a lot of good balances in between, you know, and right now, one of your biggest games you're stepping into is like a 75, 150 limit game that spreads occasionally where you're at. I know when you're out here at the LAPC in commerce, you took a, a shot in uh, our 10, 20, no limit, which can be an extremely good game, or it can be one of the world's toughest games, depending on the lineup. I really do believe there's like a lot of bracelet winners and very accomplished cash game players. But talk us through that, because I, I know I first have witnessed you implode many a times, but you've done a really good job at finding that um, balance point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one thing that's prevalent in the games today is you need to, to make it as a professional poker player, as your primary source of income, you need to be willing to play in hands down the the highest money-making game in the room. I mean, granted, you can't play a game you don't know, but you have to put your ego on the shelf and say, if the 5-10 game sucks today, I'm going to play 2-5, and I'm just going to print money there. And honestly, your hourly at 2-5 is probably going to be better than your hourly at a bad 5-10, or at a mediocre 5-10 even. If you have the same hourly at a good 2-5, and... Goodness sake, there's always a good 2-5 game in the room. You need to sit at that 2-5 and not, like, blow your brains out taking these 5K swings at a 5-10 game. So, you know, that's a big thing about being a winner today. And, like we are talking about learning these different mixed games, I mean, that's huge. If you can just walk into the room and literally pick the softest game in the room, man, you're going to just print money. Yeah, and I think it, it goes to the... Like the poker cliche, which would would you rather be the ninth best player in the world playing in a nine-handed game with the other eight better players? Would you rather be the ninth worst player in the world be playing with the worst eight players in the universe just 
printing yeah. money and struggling through uh, the game. And I think, you know, the truth is most of us would, would like to have, and a lot of people, there is ego in poker for, for a lot of us. I mean, very few people want to be terrible at something. And I had a friend who was a dealer and who's in Seattle. She would deal private games for a group of, of really, really wealthy doctors, lawyers, and what have you, business owners are really accomplished in life. You know, and they're probably overall like decent poker players, but none of them were even close to like a professional level. And, you know, they would many times exchange twenty to $40,000 checks weekly. You know, they wouldn't allow pros or accomplished players into that game. But I mean, a lot of it is what quality of game are you in and where's your skill level? And I think that's one thing I certainly lacked looking back at why I have a day job and I'm not doing this professionally is because I remember back on a shoestring bankroll, I would be, you know, playing 2040 and I'd be in a must move game shorthanded with some pretty decent players who I thought, I thought experience wise and talent wise, I was very close with. And even now looking back, I have no idea. Um, you know, I could have been misjudging a lot or little or accurate, but I, you know, you're taking big swings against aggressive, good players, four to six handed in a limit game. And it's, it's affecting your bankroll. You know, maybe when I'm sitting down a thousand to 1500 and I've got a total of seven to 8,000 to play with versus just not playing on a Tuesday night when the game suck, you know, and, and things yeah. like that, that, you know, it's hard to calculate what my net loss is my expected net loss there versus playing on like a good Friday stereotypically, you know? And I think that's one thing you've done a much better job of balancing, which is sure you'll put yourself into a big game if it looks good, but you realize that one of the standard mechanisms of being a professional, you know, being recreational, like what I consider myself um, now, which is like maybe an educated recreational player um, who loves the game. You know, it's different because now for me, it's a little different where maybe depending on my financial situation, I'll take a shot every once in a while in a bigger game because if I lose the money or I lose the buy-in to a tournament, it's not devastating. But something you had to learn the hard way is is that money is your lifeblood. You know, those are your tools to your trade, really. Yeah, dude. I mean, I went broke for what, like two years while I was in Colorado? Gosh, how much money could I have made in two years playing poker? You know, but keeping yourself in the game is a hugely underrated thing in poker. And, and I think uh, with that, like, game selection, because I, I would say at Commerce, and I know probably a lot of the people listening have not been to Commerce, the it's it's a fascinating place. You know, working in Vegas, working in small parts. That place is a zoo. It's, it's really insane. I mean, on a, on a typical Friday or Saturday night, we'll spread 120 live games of poker um, with a backdrop of probably about 100, about the same amount of blackjack-ish games as well, like, your pie gals and all the other California games. So it's a massive building and it started 32, 33 years ago. It's just a little tent and it kept getting bigger and bigger. But with that, there's a division. There's like a bottom section where there's, I think about 80 to 90 tables. And then there's a top section, which is a little more exclusive that they call the hotel where some of the biggest games in the world. And everyone wants to be in the top section. Exactly. And your dirty bottom section player, yeah, down there printing eighty bucks an hour because the five ten game's good today. Exactly, and and I, uh, I certainly won't uh, ever name names in this, but I mean, there's so many faces that I know play in the ten twenty game, um, and there's a pecking order within them. And if there's not an action player or a live one, they'll still stay up there because they'll never make the walk downstairs to this main massive section of poker 
where, yeah, there's they have to walk through like a 2-4 limit game where people are hollering, a 40 limit game where they're loud on a Friday night. But there's, you know, from some of my friends who are like, they're not top pros, but they're making a living at this or trying to. You know, like one of my guy friends, he told me uh, he plays in the 510 regularly, but he game selects it very well. And at the end of his year, he's been doing this a couple years now, his hourly rate is about the same in the 510 as it is in the 55, which is, um, you know, a smaller game. It's a 300 to 500 restricted buy-in versus 515. I said, really, 3-5 is such so much of a better game, unless I feel like the 510 game has a couple spots that I want to gamble with, I don't even bother. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's going to be true. Like it, it's going to depend where you're where you're at in the pecking order, like you said. Like if you're if you're just the best player at in the ten twenty, like by all means play ten twenty. Why not? You know you're probably going to have a higher hourly. But if you're like, you know, not the best player, but still a winning player in a lot of lineups, you just don't need to play in a tough game. Go step down one level and play where you're going to just be crushing everyone. Yeah, and that's what I loved. Like you had a guy that was. Uh... Uh, following you on Twitch and, and he, you know, let us know of a personal thing that happened in his life where he no longer has a bankroll financially. So he's willing to start at like, you know, five cent, 10 cent and try to grind. And I think more power to yeah. him because I remember when you were suffering in, in Colorado, uh, working in a really bad casino industry job, but you were taking care of family uh, and you really were having a hard time reserving money from your job because you're pretty much making just enough to pay your mortgage and you were having a harder time finding games you could play, and this is post-Black Friday. It's good, I think, for people to go through that adversity and learn the value of poker, because it, I think for a lot of us, restores that love when you can't play. Like, I know when you grind and you play five days oh, a gosh. week, it's tough. Yeah, I mean, when I'm going on a downswing, or when I'm in session and I'm, like, getting tilted, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have poker is just this grueling game and then you know like every once in a while i'll just think back a couple years ago i was working two jobs to get my wife through school and pay her bills and could hardly you know get enough sleep at night much less like take my wife on a date every once in a while and you know it's like that sucked but you know it was worth it and you know when i look back at that i'm like gosh i have it good now i just need to chill out and focus and play play this dang card game that i get to play every day you you do realize with your wife you like flopped a royal and got two people shoving <laughs> into you, right? That she suffered through oh, gosh, uh, you being a broke. No, I flopped player. like I have ace, king, and diamonds, and the flop was like 10-10-3 with 10 of diamonds, and I just ran out of royal. Yeah, it's probably against quad 10. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, but either way, yeah, I mean, and that's, I think, you know, the. I mean, I think one thing that, that has always kept us close is in different ways we have a love for poker. And not to toot my own horn, but I would say one of the things that, that empowers me to do my job to the best of my ability is that I care about the game. There's other people that I see at work and this was true with the wind. This is true. All Dude, it's true anywhere, man. I worked in Colorado. Same thing. Like people that don't love the game, don't put in the work. Or at least don't respect it, especially like dealers, chip runners, floor people. If they have never, if they don't really care about poker, if someone, some aunt or uncle worked in a casino, they're just like, oh, there's this job opening. This is what you do. Poker players are really nice. We promise. And like, you know, if they just started and they're just kind of there to be there, they don't, they don't understand that there's, that at times the game is a very beautiful, wonderful game. It can also, it's like the ocean. It can be really dangerous and beautiful or it can be really calm and peaceful and 
and it just it just depends and i think um both myself and you we we've always had love of poker and for poker and i think that's one thing why i keep returning to to play casually uh and then also why i tolerate working <laughs> yeah. it, my wife my wife would joke around and say that poker was my first love yeah and then i found her <laughs> may may might not be all that off the mark but i think <laughs> I think (laughs) one of the other things, well, it's just such a great game because as I explained it to, to my girlfriend and she's been around it a little bit, um, is it something that I, I view that's really strategically challenging because it's so multidimensional as, as we kind of wrap up this segment of talking about what in today's more difficult poker economy, it takes to be a winning player, not only like game selection, you know, learning different variations of games, but I think it, it really, I think it's very helpful and people have to gut check and ask themselves whether or not they love poker or they love money. If you just truly are trying to play poker as a tool to get wealthy or to make money so you don't have to work, I mean, poker can do that for you, but I think it's hard to play three, three years, you know, maybe at 365 days, 250 days at the felt or online. I think it's hard because it does feel like a grind. And the one thing for you that's kept you involved is you have these neat little learning experiences where you feel like, oh, okay, like maybe a little bit later if we get time today, we'll talk about like your limping strategy and you find these little wrinkles, these little areas yeah. you're experimenting with. Yeah, I mean, especially as tough as the games are today, if you want to break into No Limit Hold'em, specifically No Limit, you're going to have to put in so much work, especially on like poker theory. They have so many learning tools out. They have these GTO range solvers like PO Solver that you can, without getting too technical, you can input hand ranges and it's going to solve a strategy of playing a hand range against another hand range to the point where it's like 32% of the time you should bet this much with aces, 20% of the time you should bet this much, and the other percentage of the time you should check. You know, stuff beyond human capability, but it's revealing so much about the game. And it just... You you have to have the passion for the game if you want to put in that kind of work, especially in No Limit. No Limit's so tough today that if you don't have passion for it and if you don't put in the work and learn these study tools and use them and utilize them, you're probably just not going to make it. I mean, you're going to just be one of those washed-up live players that's banging his head against the wall, making like 10 bucks an hour and can't figure out why these people are just passing them up, passing them up. Well, yeah, I think that's completely true. And then one other thing that I know we had discussed, um, a trait is just, and we kind of alluded to it a couple of times, is just the study component. Because, you know, like I used the analogy earlier with you, you have started to play this game Hearthstone, which is like occupies way too much of my time. Um, oh, I love Hearthstone. <laughs> but there's there's games like Hearthstone, chess. Things are highly technical. You don't have a mathematical basis, which a lot of, like there's, there's kind of a harmony between math and a lot of strategy in most cases, uh, especially with poker, obviously, where there are a lot of study tools out there. You know, there are there's optimized like decks and certain things that are like obviously mathematically silly um, in that game and in other games. But and like with chess, there's a lot to study. There's a lot that's been explored. Um, but a lot of people want to just go out there and play. Like I remember my ex was a a really, really good golfer and I'm I'm pretty awful. Um, and I played only a handful of times. And she said, culturally, being from Asia, she she learned, she worked with a coach and she studied for a couple months, a couple times a week before ever 
actually going out and play. And she said that conversely, like the more American and Western way of playing is that you just go out and you like go to the driving range, you just start whacking at the ball and then you just start like going out and playing nine holes. And a lot of times you develop a lot of leaks that way to use a poker term. And I think it's very similar with, with the reason why poker as tough as it's getting in some areas is will always be viable because there's always people out there who like want us to run out there and play. You know, they want to use buzzwords and like, oh, I had pot odds and stuff like that. Like, yeah, I mean, I, would, out there I would take someone degrees of skill lower and start teaching them over someone who thinks that they kind of know what they're doing, but have all these leaks, like you're saying. The quintessential live player that wants to explain it, explain away all of their mistakes and not take. You know, it's like you bring up something that they did. It's like, why did you take that line? Because, you know, they have eight different reasons that they did it, that none of them make sense. But and then I look at them, and I'm like, well, I mean, clearly you don't want to learn anything or else, you know, I'm not going to give you some help. Yeah, you can't fill a cup that's already full. Um, yeah, exactly. And I think that's the other thing that, that we talked about. And uh, I think the last point we'll touch on in this segment is that realistically, one of the most important things that a player has to have and be and constantly renew is have an accurate self-perception. And I think that's not only emotionally, but with like money management, where you're at in life is, I mean, we've had friends, uh, we've had seen people at the felt that maybe aren't friends, but they're just in the room constantly that they don't have an accurate self-perception of what the game is to them. It's a compulsion or it's, you know, even I've had friends, and I think we had a mutual friend who tried to go pro, who's probably kind of damaging to, to what he and we actually had a female friend. A lot of people, you know, this is not a good thing, but there's a lot of self delusion in poker, and anyone who's played many hours at the felt knows that. That's why I think a good trait that you've always had is understanding that you've had some humility, and you've always wanted to do that that study and that work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not I'm not immune from it. I. I still have times where I'm like trying to convince myself something is a reasonable play. And it's just like, who am I kidding? And, but I mean, sometimes I still convince myself that, you know, this is, this isn't crazy, but it's just a bad call or a bad bet, or it's way too optimistic to think that they're folding enough. So it, it happens to everyone, but the more that you can buck that instinct to try to rationalize, to try to prove yourself or to stroke your ego and say, you know, it's okay, I did the right thing, it's just bad luck, the more you're going to improve. If you can't see your glaring leaks, you're never going to fix them. Well, and I think I have, this is a perfect segue, because it's kind of like sick brag for me. Um, I possibly saved you the bracelet uh, by racing oh, dude. at 110 miles an hour in a Prius. Uh, uh, that would have given me nightmares. Uh, uh, which I pictured documentation. To get into Vegas, because by the time I got there, I witnessed, I think, like, it go, like, four or five-handed all the way down to quickly heads up, and you were against a guy who, really nice guy, and he, he put up a really good fight heads up. Um, Eric, the biology teacher from California. Yeah, but certainly an, cool dude. an amateur, and I think I listened to another podcast, actually, and one interesting thing, it was going through the psychology of, like, more casual players, and I think one of the things that pros or people like myself that have played a lot of poker forget is a lot of these players are not thinking about like positive EV and about like leveling and all these other different dynamics. They're thinking about winning pots. They're trying to win the money that's in the middle every time, you know? Yeah. And it's like, Oh, you know, I should have check raised you all in. And even though it's pretty ridiculous situationally or stack size or, 
you know, uh, but they, they think in such a linear fashion. And I think momentum certainly emotionally matters on both sides. Um, but especially with the less sophisticated, less, and I guess I don't want to say always less sophisticated, but I think more the casual player who still is still trying to do some sophisticated things in his or her mind, but they're just more casual. So they're not as prepared as, as someone, you know, like yourself. But I think that's a really, really great example. Don't you? Oh yeah, dude. I mean, I remember when we got the heads up, you had just got, yeah, you got there when we were what, like three or four handed. Yeah. I think that's about right. Yeah. We got the heads up and I was like, holy crap, dude, I'm heads up with one of the weakest players that was at this table. And I was super stoked about it. And then we got the heads up and I just tried to run him over. And I was like, I was trying to do all these like sophisticated bluffs and stuff. And I'm like, luckily we went on break in like 10 minutes and you pulled me aside and you're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, dude, talk me off the ledge because I'm about to lose my mind. Like I was, I was tilted, but I was trying to hold it together. But Praise God we had that break because you talked me off the ledge right yeah, there. And it, I was about to give away a bracelet. And I think realistically you were – I mean it was clear for myself and, and my girlfriend Grace. Um, we both were like – there were certain spots where you like clicked back a river where the bets had, bets had escalated to where he was betting uh, for value. And I remember you clicked it back based on the board texture. And I think he like just snapped it. He snap called it um, pretty quickly. And yeah. You know, I mean, I'm looking at the amount of big blinds and I'm like, you know, realistically, you need to like slow down the pace because you're feeding his rhythm at this time. Like he's becoming more aggressive because he's getting excited because he's got nothing to lose. I mean, this guy was a real gentleman about it all the way through and was really pretty fun. Uh, entertaining oh, shout out to Eric. Eric, he's, he's awesome. He's awesome. But fun guy. at the same time, you know, you you were stuck in your own mind and your own reverberations of what you thought was correct. And I think just having those, like, even though I'm not as sophisticated as a player as you, but having that outside perspective to snap you out of it and let you, and the break helped. I mean, it was really a godsend, like you said. Oh, yeah. You know, really was a difference. Um, and speaking of that, like, you know, the momentum, let's talk through really quickly as uh, our last segment kind of, um, one of the what I saw is one of the most pivotal hands. So so you've got this heads up match where you had like almost a two to one chip lead, first five or six hands before the break. You try to run over this guy, and you turn back into that spew monster that I knew. Where you're like, <laughs> how can he call me with bottom pair when I've been like trying to raise him off every hand for the last five hands in a row <laughs> as this young bearded uh, professional guy. Um, through the beard. And yeah. So you start to slow I, it down a little bit, and then this hand happens. Kind of walk us through. A little yeah. Action. yeah, so I was doing a um, limping strategy on the button, and it was funny. I started doing limping on the button, and then he started doing it too, which was, like, beautiful. I want to play small pots. If this guy starts limping on the button, it's, like, even better for me. So this is one of those hands where he limped on the button, and then I was in the big blind with pocket twos. Now, pocket twos doesn't play particularly well post-flop, so if I can raise and get a fold from, like, 8-4 offsuit right here, pretty good result. You know, like, picking up, taking his 48% equity and turning it into zero right there, pretty good result. So I raised uh, 370000 so I raised 250000 more. Blinds were 60000 120000 So I raised 250000 more, and he min re-raises me 250000 on top of that. So at this point, when he three bets you, 
Um, and if I remember the action, because we're we're railing this, and being that it's just a 1K, they don't have like this sophisticated final table with like a big screen. Like so, we're kind of just like you know with our own vision trying to see what's going on. I remember he three bet pretty quickly. It was almost like an instant like bang bang thing, um, where he just clicks yeah. it back to you. What were you talk us through what you thought his range was at this time? Well, I mean, I think a lot of his, uh, you know, the timing kind of makes me think that he doesn't have a huge, huge hand, but, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not one to give big, big weight to that, but I think he's mostly going to be doing this with Ace-X or just big card hands, King-10 or something, or like, you know, maybe like a random suited thing, like well, he's Ace-8 suited. And from the rail, I mean, we hadn't seen him do anything too like to use casual player terms too sneaky yet. He hadn't done any like check back raises or anything too sophisticated. He'd been just like either running over you like bet, bet, bet or like fold or like bet, call check, raise just very, it was a very straightforward small ball match. Yeah. He was very fit or fold. Yeah. And he, he didn't really value bet. He wouldn't value bet thin. Like he was checking back bad top pairs heads up. I mean, it was, yeah, that's, that's exactly true. I mean, we had not seen him, especially after the break, when you his his momentum seemed to slow down slightly, and because you were stop you stopped trying to run over him, and it was kind of like you guys were playing some small pots for a while, um, and you you've been forty fifty hands into the heads up match approximately, so I mean you had some history, and then walk us through what you do after he he clicks it back. Yeah, so he min re raises, so he makes it a total of about six hundred thousand, and there's really not much to do with deuces other than call. We're uh, to give some perspective, I think we were approximately uh, three million chips deep ish. Uh, well, maybe more than that. Maybe more like four, four or five. But effective. Wait, yeah, effective. I probably had like four million. He had like seven. Yeah, that's about accurate. I think. Yeah. So I mean, there's not really anything to do other than just take it to the streets and try to play post. So I call and uh, flop comes six five four rainbow. So with pocket twos, uh, it's pretty up there on, in terms of flops. You know, it's going to miss a lot of his over cards. Um, we do flop a gut shot if he does have a larger pair. So, but we're pretty happy to get to showdown. So we check, and he bets six hundred thousand, which is about the same size as preflop. Well, and, and I might add too, like we're probably thinking his preflop range is not medium to large pairs because his preflop action, he's probably not just going to limp with like eights or nines there. You know, I mean, he might limp three bet, maybe like fours or fives, you know, but I, I felt from the rail that like is probably over card dish or maybe like sevens and below or eights and below. That was just my thought process watching everything unfold. Yeah. Really the turn and river though. So I, I call the 600, and the turn and river is really where this hand becomes just very easy to read against an amateur player. So six five four rainbow flop turn is a queen, and I think it brings a backdoor flush draw, but it doesn't really matter. I check to him, and he checks back. So this is very telling because one, Eric was he was a little bit scared to give like if he has a pair or a good hand, whatever we're going to classify a good hand for him, he's afraid of giving free cards. He's very much the mindset of, I can't let him suck out on me. 
So when he checks back when the queen comes, it tells me he for sure doesn't have two pair. He, I mean, almost definitely doesn't have a queen or better. So when he checks back, his his hands get very very weak. Right, because he so he doesn't. I mean, we we would expect him to be betting like all sets, pocket sevens, almost always pocket eights, potentially. You know, a, you know a lot of those pairs which we even I think can discount preflop. Um, he he's pretty much limiting himself to worse than top pairs. So probably like sixes, fives, or fours. A pair like one pair of sixes, fives, or fours is his most likely hand right now. Right. So he that that has his beat. Yeah. Exactly. And and he's actually I mean he's going to still have like ace highs and king highs and blah blah blah. Okay. But it, the important thing is that he really can't have top pair better at this point. Okay. And then the river is a jack offsuit jack if I remember. Yeah, river's an offsuit jack and I check again. And now he bets. He bets I think about a million, which is a reasonable sized bet, but nothing huge. And so when we put together the our turn reasoning, and if you remember, we have a read on Eric. He had not bet like he was afraid to bet bad top pairs. Right. So, so when the river comes, he's checking there. Yeah. When the river it, like comes to Jack, betting it thin. Yes, he's very much the amateur uh, recreational player that's very happy to get to showdown in a big pot. Like he's ready. He has a mediocre hand. It's like okay, I'm going to check and I'm going to see if I'm good. So when he bets river, we know that he doesn't have top pair or better, and we know that he doesn't bet worse than top pair. So it's like he literally can only have a bluff there. And it was honestly, I, I remember sitting there and thinking, this is probably one of the easier calls I'm going to make all day, but it's a huge pot. And I just sat there and I thought it through, and I'm like, yeah, I, I really don't think he can have much of anything here. And I stick the million chips in and... I can't even remember what he showed. I think he showed like king nine offsuit or something. Uh, I believe it was actually ace nine. I think it was, it was okay. ace nine. But I, yeah, I don't remember quite either. But I remember from the rail, uh, a lot of people like from his sweat section because it wasn't big. There was probably like fifteen people on the rail. But a lot of people were really that could see the hand had that good a vision. Were pretty shocked. Um, I remember Eric's expression too. He was a little bit taken aback by it. I remember directly following the hand, he looked over at me, and he goes, well, the chips are right back where they should be. <laughs> he, he, he was, I mean, he, we joked around quite a bit, but he was a little bit defeated after that one. Yeah, and I remember it just slowed him down, and he turtled, and he let you balance your aggression and kind of pick up your aggression, and you found some really good value bet spots um, where you're value betting like middle pair, and, you know, you're reading board textures, and you used... You know, your experience against him um, is getting later in the evening. You guys have played a long day. So I think all those things factored in. But but we felt from the rail that at that point in time, the match was Yeah, it was, it was really a turning point. Um, he was a little bit demoralized. And, you know, we were all tired and ready to go, kind of. And I was just able to make good value bets, bet some scare cards with bluffs, and really just take advantage. Okay. Well, that's, that's awesome. I think this is uh, largely going to be the format of our podcast. We're going to try to keep it under an hour or around an hour. Um, we know there's a lot of other podcasts out there that you know go in excess of an hour, and we think that an hour is sufficient. I mean, that's about how long we want to hear each other talk for anyways. And uh, Yeah, I'm tired of you. Um, but we're <laughs> going to try to cover a couple topics. I think next week 
Chase and I discuss, or not next week, but next podcast, we're going to go over like ethics, what that means, um, you know, certain concepts that we think are relative. Um, we'd love to have a mailbag be the tail end of this. I think the last 15, 20 minutes, we'd love to go through. Yes, I want to hear from my peeps. Yeah, and I would love to develop some peeps. So um, we'd love oh, to go through. Oh, peeps, man. When's Easter coming? Oh, man. Sorry, the fat kid in me. <laughs> um, maybe not even just a kid. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we want to go through some of your, fat your questions. It. I love it. And just some of the topics. Like if you want us to talk about PLO and a couple of people say, hey, you know, have a similar question or just say, hey, go over what you're experiencing with PLO. Uh, next week we're going to go through ethics and then also like blind play, defense. Um, I know you've developed a limping strategy that you're still working through that we've talked about a little bit. So just to give you guys an idea of what we're going to be going through for the next podcast. Yeah, that's about all I got. <laughs> all right. Yeah, me too. Hopefully I'm not going to be sick next week. Yeah. Um, thank you guys for listening. And this is Andrew and Chase for top two, top two Pokemon. Oh my gosh. And (laughs) that's all we have. Later. Bye.